Well, I want to uh, tell you about this book, Liberating Ministry from the Success Syndrome. It's written by Kent and Barbara Hughes. It was required reading for me when I was in seminary. Uh, the backstory of this book is that uh, Kent, who was a retired pastor at College Church, he was at College Church at the time as a pastor, and he and his wife got up one Sunday evening and, and simply shared about uh, their ministry and their ministry struggles and uh, a church plant that they started that didn't do so well. And uh, Lane Dennis, who was the president at Crossway at the time, Crossway Books, said, wow, that is, that is a really good story to tell. Would you mind making that into a book? And so he and Barbara basically made the, wrote this book. It, it, it's a book really aimed for pastors. Um, not expecting that any of you have ever read it, much less heard about it. But it's, it's aimed at pastors who fall into a thinking of this mindset that ministries need to be successful in order to be pleasing to the Lord. That is big and large and having a great impact upon the world. Uh, Kent Hughes tells a little bit about how he was uh, an up-and-coming youth pastor in this book. Is the first two chapters um, set that stage. And the first chapter here is called A Dark Night of the Soul. Chapter 1 is called Disappointing Dreams. And, and then even um, at the end of, of the chapter, he describes this. So he planted this church. And he said everything was going right for him. He said on page 18, from the start, we had everything going for us. We had the prayers and the predictions of our friends who believed a, a vast growing work was inevitable. We had the sophisticated insights of the science of church growth. We had a superb nucleus of believers. We had me, a young pastor with a good track record who was entering his prime and we expected to go. He said, but to our astonishment, the resounding disappointment, we didn't. In fact, after considerable time and in Incredible labor. We had fewer regular tenders than in the first six months. Our church was shrinking and the prospects looked bad, really bad. And uh, some of the things that he learned from that is just he tried to plant a church and failed in that process. And then he went to college church, which is a wildly successful church in Wheaton. They give away half of their income to foreign missions. And, and are doing just a tremendous job of reaching around the world. They have sent so many missionaries out of that church. And he, has a, he was a longtime pastor of that church. And he just calls people, calls pastors, just to really think about what makes a, a successful ministry. And over and over in this book, he says, As Barbara and I searched the scriptures, we found no place where it says God's servants are called to be successful. Rather, we are simply called to be Faithful. And so what he puts forth in his, his book is just what a, a faithful ministry looks like. And um, I just need to confess this morning that I often fall into success syndrome in my own, my own pastoral feelings and desires. My constant wrestling is for a desire for the size of our church. We, we planted our church 20 years ago and been about the same size. Once we've amped up to about 80, 100 people, we've been about there for the last 20 years. And people have come, people have gone. We've remained a constant small church. Now, in America, we, we're not really a small church. Half the churches in America have fewer than 65 people. That's like, like, like the median. So if you're 65 people, then you're like, um, you're like, like right in the middle in terms of, of, of number of churches and in church size. So that means that we were above that. We're like an above average bigger church. I always consider our church to be a little small. Um, but I've always longed for our church to be bigger. I've worked hard to reach out to people, to see people come to Christ, 
Reach out to the neighborhood and reach out to others. Long for that. So I, I understand the benefits of a larger church with multiple staff. One, one pastor I know says, when you add staff to your church, you don't add ministry, you multiply ministry. As, as more can do that. And, um, you know, we as a the congregation, I've been the only pastor for all these years. And, and I know what a multiple staff can do where crowds attract crowds. Right? There's something about being in a, in a place with hundreds of people that's different than being in a place of 80 people like this morning. And it's discouraging to me to see how people leave our small church to join the big church that's going really well. And we are, are struggling. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand the struggles of a large church. A LifeWay research project said this. As churches grow into a larger category, there's a decline among the churchgoers in giving, willingness to volunteer, and overall participation in the congregation. It lends credence to the stereotype that some attendees of larger churches are looking for a place to spectate but not to serve. And I understand this. I understand the blessings that we have received as an average-sized church. We have a generous congregation. Many of you are involved in many ministries of the church. High percentage of you are volunteering and, and giving to the life of the church. And there are things that we can do that a large church simply can't do. And, and I'm, I'm constantly looking for encouragement along these lines. In fact, I had a, a breakfast yesterday morning with a retired pastor who was involved in the jail ministry last weekend. We had like a recap this Saturday morning. And, and during a conversation, he said, you know, I've, I've pastored quite a few churches in my, my life. He says, but the most enjoyable days I had of being a pastor was in the small church I pastored for 14 years. And that, that's, like, that's like energy to my soul to realize that what we're doing here, we don't, we're not a big organization. We're, we're a family. We're an organism with people who love and serve one another. And I'm thankful for that. And I'm thankful for Rock Valley Bible We may not be the biggest church in town, but the ministry of experience has been sweet indeed. But perhaps the greatest encouragement that I can receive comes not from other pastors, but from the pages of Scripture. When Jesus shows us how we ought to think about our average-sized church, because that's what we're going to see in the church in Philadelphia. We're going to see an average church. In fact, we're going to see a, a small church in Philadelphia. So if you haven't opened your Bibles this morning, I invite you to open them to Revelation chapter 3. Verses 7 through 11, as we work through these churches in Revelation, and then we'll, we'll go on. We have one, one more week next week as we look at the church in uh, Laodicea. But this church in Philadelphia is a church that has, quote-unquote, little power. If you look in chapter 3 and verse 8, Jesus says this, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but a little power. That is small, limited resources, limited influence in the world. But this little church is more strongly commended in Revelation chapter two and three than any of the other churches. Jesus speaks only good about this church. He says in verse eight, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Jesus says in verse nine, I've loved you. Jesus said in verse 10, you have kept my word about patient endurance. And as a result, the promises to this small church are deeper than any other promises to any other church in Revelation 2 and 3. Jesus says this, verse 9, I will make your enemies come and bow down before your feet. He says in verse 10, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world. And Jesus says to those who overcome, verse 11, no one will seize your crown. Verse 12, I'll make you a pillar in the temple. 
Verse 12, you will never go out of the temple, meaning that you'll have God's presence always there with you. I will write on you the name of my God. Verse 12, I will write on you the name of the city of my God, and I will write on you my own new name. These all indicate the abundant blessings of God that come upon the small but faithful church. And I'm encouraged by that. You say, it says, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. That's very true. And when it comes to the church, the best evaluation of the church is done by the builder of the church, Jesus. With the church in Philadelphia, we find out that Jesus isn't concerned much with size of church at all. He's more concerned about our faithfulness to him and our faithfulness to the gospel, our faithfulness to one another, our faithfulness to endure. And this ought to come to great encouragement in in all of our hearts that we may not be the biggest church in town. But Jesus says, I'm not going to judge you on the size of your church. I'm going to judge you on the faithfulness of the church. I'm going to judge you on how faithful you've been to me. Well, the title of my message this morning is, Keep My Word. That's the core of the command this little church in, in Philadelphia received. You can see that core of the command right there in verse 10. Because you have kept my word. And for us, a, as a normal church with little power, I want it to exhort all of us. To keep the word of Jesus. Keep my word. So let's, let's read our text. Revelation chapter 3, 7 through 9. You can follow along in your Bibles. Jesus writes, and to the angel, Jesus speaks, dictates to John, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have, but little power. And yet, you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming upon the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. You as an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And again, I want to remind you of our map that we have been looking at. This is a, a map of the, the seven churches in uh, Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And when John wrote this letter, he was a, a prisoner in the island of Patmos. And now he's writing to Philadelphia. He's already written to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira in chapter 2. And now he's writing. Um, he, he wrote then in chapter 3 to Sardis. And now he's writing to Philadelphia. And there'll be one last letter on his mail route, if you will, which is the church in Laodicea. And we've looked at these letters over the past five weeks. Next week, we will look at the church to Laodicea. And by way of outline, I'm simply pulling out uh, just a key statement uh, for my first point in verse seven. All my points are going to be like quotes from Jesus says, I have the keys is what Jesus says in verse seven. Now, consistent with the other letters to the churches, this comes from the description of Jesus in chapter one. Like every time, all the letters talk about this is who Jesus is. If you just pull back just in chapter 1, you can see a description of, of where that is. And in chapter 1 and verse 17, 
Jesus says this, fear not, I'm the first and the last. And the living one, I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. See, Jesus conquered death. He has the keys to overcome death. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. There is a, the key of death and Hades. He's opened up death, given us hope through Easter in this, in this life and the life to come. And this is good news we proclaim, right? You trust in Jesus and there's hope after this life. There's hope in everlasting life. As Jesus overcame death and Hades by rising from the dead. Oh, church family, believe in Jesus and so live forever. But that's not the key that Jesus has here in Revelation. In Revelation, it is the key of David. We look at verse 7. The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David. So this is sort of referring back to chapter 1. But actually, this is the only time in Revelation 2 and 3 of the church that there's really something new. And here it is, the, the key of David. Well, have you ever seen a, a janitor, like one of those guys who's got a carabiner on his belt, like I, I got on the picture right there. He's got all the keys, right? He's pulling them out. That's, that's what Jesus has. He's got all the sorts of keys. He's got the key of death and Hades. You're like, okay, well, let's see. I raised from the, yep, 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 yep. Like, but let's open up that door. And he's got this other one. It's called the key of David. Now you say, what is the key of David. Well, you think it has something to do with David and the Davidic promise, and certainly it does do that in 2 Samuel 7. But this key is an illusion of the picture given Isaiah 22. In your Bibles, if you write in your Bibles, I encourage you to write Isaiah 22 right next there to verse 7. Particularly Isaiah 22 and verse 22 is where it talks about. But in, in this chapter, Isaiah is describing this transfer of power. There's an unfaithful man named Shebna, and then there's this faithful man named Eliakim. And Eliakim then is, is given the authority. It's taken away from Shebna and given to Eliakim. And the picture here is a transfer of power, a transfer of authority, a transfer over the kingdom of Judah. Listen to what Isaiah says, Isaiah 22, 21 through 23. And this Eliakim shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on him the key of the house of David. He shall open and no one shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. And he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. In other words, what the Lord is saying is that Eliakim will have power in Judah. He's got the key. Nobody comes in and out of Judah apart from him. He'll dwell secure. He'll care for those in Jerusalem and Judah like a father would. And when it comes to Jesus, when he says, I have the key of David. I'm of the line of David. I've been given keys to his messianic kingdom. I have governmental power. I have governmental control. I have governmental authority. I control who gets into the kingdom. I control who stays out of the kingdom because I've got the key. Nobody opens or shuts apart from me. I had a great illustration of this last week when I went into the county jail for the spiritual impact weekend. Right? In order to get to the jail, there's high security to get to the pod where the, where the residents are. First of all, you've got to go through the metal detectors. Right there where the police are. You've got you to take your belt off. You've got to empty all your pockets and go through. And you're going to be waved by the wand and all, all that sort of thing. Once we get through there, then we go through another door into the administrative wing. And then beyond the administrative wing, then we come to some doors. These are called sally doors. I'm not sure if you're ever familiar with what those sally doors are. Maybe you've seen them in movies or whatever. But these are two sliding doors. You know, they're both shut. And you walk up to the door 
and you, you, you can't open it. Like, you can get to the security realm if you've got one of those keys, right? You can just kind of move, you put your key in front of the door, and it locks, and you get in. But you can't get into the housing unit through these sally doors unless, right, you get there, and control center sees on their cameras, yes, someone's there, and they press a button, and that first door goes, it opens, and you walk into the sally port, and behind you, the door shuts, and you got about 30 feet between these doors, and they're watching you, and maybe you got to sign in sometimes at where you go. And then after control panel, we'll open up the other door, and then you can walk through. And you do that to get to the housing units, which is where all, all the pods are. And then we went to the fourth floor. And then in order to get into the actual pod itself, we had to go through these sally doors again, right? We had to walk up to them, and there was the door, and the control center saw us, and it opened that door, and we walked into that space, and the door closed behind us. And then once we were secure in there, then the door opened up and we came in. It's a security measure. It's, a, it's what doors are. And, and the idea is nobody's going to get into the jail apart from control center knowing who is going where at all times. And so it is with Jesus. He has the key and he's the one. If you look at verse 7, I have the key of David who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. It's not anybody with this passcode is going to be able to go in and get in. He's got to have control center to open those doors up. It's Jesus who opens the sally doors, determines who comes in and who comes out. Well, you say in and out of what? Well, in and out of the kingdom is what we're talking about here. The promises made at the end of the letter, right, refer to the kingdom of God. We speak about this heavenly crown in verse 11. And then we read about... The, the, the New Jerusalem and the temple of God. We'll read about that in Revelation 21 when we get there, which tells of the, the heavenly city coming down where, where God will dwell with men and He will be their God and they will be His people. And the only way into that door comes through the one who has the keys. That's Jesus. And in verse 7, Jesus said, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David. This, this is the Holy One and the true one. Jesus, in His holiness, right? Jesus is the power to operate the doors. In, in His truth, Jesus is the only way into the kingdom. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's through Christ. It's a door to enter into the kingdom. That's how Jesus opens His letter to the church in Philadelphia. He just wants to assure them that, listen, right? To get in the kingdom, I got the key. And so, right, you want to get in, you want to have favor with the guy who has the key. And that is Christ. Believe and trust in Him. Well, the next commendation of the church comes in verse 8 where jesus says you've kept my word it's a commendation to the people in philadelphia he says verse 8 i know your works behold i've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut and i know that you have but little power and yet you've kept my word and not denied my name <clears throat> now this is a commendation of the church in in philadelphia and what's unique about this commendation is there's nothing negative about this church nothing negative Unlike the letters to the other churches. In Ephesus, they're told that, yes, you're discerning, that's good, but you've lost your first love. Pergamum and Thyatira both told that they tolerated false teaching in their congregation. The Nicolaitans, Balaam, immorality, Jezebel. Sardis is told, chapter 3, verse 1, that they're dead. Laodicea, we'll see next week, that they're lukewarm. But none of that comes here. Jesus is totally positive when it comes to evaluating the church in Philadelphia. And by the way, Smyrna, also, Jesus is totally positive with them. So you think about, okay, so all the seven churches, which are the ones that he lifts up? Which are the ones that he just totally commends? Smyrna 
in Philadelphia. And what do you know about Smyrna? Is that church that was bordering on extinction, that there are going to be some people who are going to die there. It's very difficult. Lots of oppression coming from the world. Jesus commends them entirely. And this church then in Philadelphia, this church of little power. Jesus says, I know your works. That's how he opens up almost every church. It's because he walks among the seven lampstands. Jesus knows the church in Philadelphia. He knows our church. He knows every church. The church in Philadelphia continues on. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And this goes back to Jesus having the keys. The door is wide open for those in Philadelphia to enter in. John 10, Jesus uses this same terminology, the same language about being a door himself. Jesus says, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. It's the loving embrace of Jesus. His arms are open wide to all who turn from their sin and would trust in Christ. He's worthy of our trust. In fact, in the same context, when Jesus says, I'm the door, I'm the way through life, he also speaks about being the good shepherd. And, and, And trusting in the good shepherd leads us to the abundant life. Jesus said in John 10, verse 11, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So what God has done for us, what Christ has done for us, he's laid down his life. So he's opened this door for salvation. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Once you enter that door, he shuts and just like a sally gate, nothing's going to be lost. And for those in Philadelphia, this was certainly true. He's the open door through which all of his sheep enter and find safety. And that comes not by some big and powerful church with great reputation like those in Sardis. And this commendation comes not to the rich and comfortable church like those in Laodicea. This great promise, right? This great opportunity, this this great commendation comes to the church with little power. Again, verse 8, right? I know that you have but a little power. Now, we don't know what this means. Little power. I was, I was thinking about a picture of, a, you know, a little guy in a Superman costume. Right? This, maybe a trick-or-treater or something like that. I can picture this guy. He's maybe seven years old. I don't know. Six years old. He's like, ah, I got power. But, you know, his Superman. But he's only got just a little power. He has a symbol of power, but really just a child really has little power. <clears throat> but that's a good picture of what, what this means. Was it mean little power? We, we don't know, but I just want some commentators to speak about this. I got just pulled three commentators, typical of many. Simon Kistemacher said this, these Christians were so insignificant, they could not even be regarded as meaningful. George Ellen Ladd said this, apparently this church was small, poor, and uninfluential. Grant Osborne said this, the church lacked size and stature in the community and was looked down upon and persecuted. They had little authority or influence. And that's describing the church at Philadelphia and it's describing us at Rock Valley Bible Church. And when evaluating Philadelphia, she just doesn't look for size, doesn't look for great success or influence. He looks at the very things that Philadelphia excelled in. And he said in verse 8, you've kept my word and have not denied my name. And this application really comes straight to us. We should strive for these two actions, to keep my word and not deny my name. Really, two sides of the same coin. One of coin. One is positive, one is negative. Keep my word. Follow after him in positive obedience and action to the gospel, keeping the words of Jesus in a positive way. 
The other side, right? The negative side. Don't deny his name. Rather, honor the Lord Jesus in all we do. The two actions we strive after, right? Obedience to the word, faithfulness to his name, even through persecution, right? Being faithful to his name. The first action is really the basis of my title and message this morning because it's repeated twice. It said there right in verse 8, you have kept my word. It says in verse 10, because you have kept my word, therefore a command for us this morning is what? Keep his word. She comes right there. We need to obey the Lord. Do what he says. Submit and follow in his ways. That's part of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is to make disciples of all the nations. Right? How do you do that? You, you go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And this is our, this is our aim as a church, is to go out and make disciples. See people come to obedience of Christ. Be, be disciples, followers after Him, right? Submitting to the Lord in every way. Following after Him in obedience. And doing the work of making disciples who would follow in the way of obedience as well. And I find this encouraging because at the end of the day, or literally at the end of time, Jesus is looking for those who've been faithful, as Kent Hughes says. For those who've followed after him, kept his word. It's not the size of the church that matters, it's not the number of converts or baptisms we have every year, it's faithfulness to Jesus. Whether we've kept his word, and we've not denied his name. And we can do this by the power of Christ, we can, by the power of Christ, we can uphold his name. We can stay true. So church family, let's make this ambition of our heart to to keep his word. My third point this morning, Jesus says, right? You've kept my word. Then he gives a promise. Since you've kept my word, I'm going to keep you. So he says, verses 9 and 10. That's really the core of what he says. If you look at verse 9, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And I trust you can see the core right there in verse 10. Because you've kept my word and patient endurance, I will keep you. You keep my word, and I will keep you. That's just talking about protection. That's what he's going to do. Verse 9 speaks about being kept from the evils of the synagogue of Satan, right? being protected from the evils of this synagogue. Now, we've seen the synagogue before in chapter 2 and verse 9. The church of Smyrna, right? A persecuted church. Here's Philadelphia. Maybe they're small because they're persecuted. He says right there, I know your tribulation, your poverty, but you're rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, these congregations obviously aren't the same, right? Smyrna's along the coast. Philadelphia's about 100 miles inland, straight east, but certainly had some of the same beliefs, like, like denominational beliefs, right? Lutherans right here and Baptists here. This is the synagogue of Satan. Now, I don't think they put that on their banner of their synagogue, but I think that likewise they, they were really following after Satan because they were the the Jews that rejected Jesus the Messiah against all knowledge. These were the Jews who went forth and persecuted Christians, actively being against the kingdom of Christ. But what made these people, this synagogue, particularly stenchful to Jesus is that they say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. You can see that right there in verse 9. They didn't follow in the, the footsteps of the faith of their father Abraham. They were unfaithful witnesses to the name of God. And certainly their persecution of uh, those in Philadelphia was, was fierce. 
And to this, those in Philadelphia given assurance that Jesus would, would, would protect them, would keep them, and guard them. And you're going to do that by vengeance. Jesus says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And he'll repay with your ultimate vindication. Look at verse 9. Look at how we will make them pay. It says, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they're Jews and not but lie. Here he goes. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. In the end, they will see that you are right. Do you have people in your life right now who think you're crazy? Maybe who, who ridicule you? Who, like, don't understand your faith? Why, why is it you go to that place every Sunday? Why is it you pour out yourself for these people? It's just all the hogwash. Well, there'll be a day when all those who oppose us indeed will see clearly you've been right and I've been wrong. They, they will see that God's love has been upon us in Christ and their faith is real and God returns His love to us for our faith, right? We believe and trust in Him and He loves us. The fruit of the Lord is worked in our lives. It's His doing. Right? He's loved us. He's showered His kindness and blessing upon us. And those who have persecuted us and mocked us for our faith will that fall down before our feet. Right? Think of the story of, of Esther, right? Haman was so proud, but what he, had to, he had to bow before Mordecai. That's what God will do with people who mock you today. But you don't need to force that. You just need to wait. Because vengeance is Christ's. He will make them come and bow down, and they will learn that I have loved you. Paul, Paul talked about this time in Romans 8, verse 19. He talked about the time when, when all of creation long, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. There's going to be a day when Christ comes back where the books are going to be open and it's going to be, here it is. Here are the sons of God. And here is the rest of the world. Right? The sons of God, the one who have loved God, God has been adopted into his kingdom. And here they are. And the world sees that and rejoices. The creation does anyway. And then... People will bow down, right? The Philippians 2 is talking about that. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in that day, Jesus Christ is Lord. And it'll be clear who have loved, who are those who have loved God and served Him, and God has loved them. And what a time they'll be. No longer misunderstood, no longer mocked for following Jesus, no longer thinking that we're fools for holding fast to the name of the Jesus, but all be made clear. So just think about that person you're trying to convince, you're trying to say, you're trying to show how winsome you are and wise you are and how this is the best thing and they don't understand. You don't, don't have to worry about that. They will see one day as God makes it clear. And Jesus says, I'm going to keep you. All right, that's verse 10. Verse 9 is the same idea, but this is 10, said in a little bit different way. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And what a promise this is to the church in Philadelphia and to us. When we keep the word of Christ, right, patiently enduring through the trials of life, patiently enduring the ridicules of others, patiently enduring the opposition of those who don't believe, God will keep us from the hour of trial. Now, now there are many who, who take this verse to mean that God will rapture us out of the world so that we don't face the tribulation that breaks out. Right? They say, well, God is going to remove us. That's how he's going to keep us from the hour of trial. But that's not what verse, mean, verse 10 means at all. I mean, first of all, verse 10 was written to the church at Philadelphia. 
He promised that the hour of trials coming upon the world is in their time, first century, right? There's some trial that came upon in their time, not to some long distant 2000 years later, future time. But second and more importantly, right, this phrase, keep you from the hour of trial, doesn't mean removal. It means protection through. And I say this because John used the same phrase in his high priestly prayer in John 17. He's praying for his earthly disciples, right? Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and and those guys. He said, I'm no longer in this world. He's praying to the Father. They're, They're listening on. He says, Father, I'm no longer in this world, but they are in the world. I'm coming to you, Holy Father. And he prays, keep them in your name. Right? You keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And then he continues on several verses later. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of this world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Keeping them from is the same Greek word right here, tereoak, if you know anything about this. He's going to keep you from the hour of trial. He's going to protect you from that. He's going to surround you in that. Not going to removal, but protection within. And that's what Jesus prayed. Don't don't take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. And that's what is the promise here in Philadelphia. Yes, yes, things are happening all around. Yes, you only have a few of you be faithful, but I will keep you from the hour of trial. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to guard you. It's not going to get you. But it's not taking you out. It's going to walk right through that. God God also often will bring trials into into our lives. And He sustains us through those trials. In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world, right? Through Him we can endure through these things. But this promise to keep us from the hour of trial is a promise throughout the Bible, Right? That God sustains us within. He gives us the strength to persevere through them. And so when we face health struggles, He sustains our spirit through the trials. And we face financial hardships. He provides our every need. And we face the temptation of sin. He provides the way of escape through trusting in Jesus. And we face ridicules of unbelievers. He'll provide you the strength to hold fast. And for those in Philadelphia, facing this persecution from the synagogue of Satan, Jesus promises to sustain them. He promises to keep them. Or as I say, Jesus says, I will keep you. Okay, final point this morning, I will claim you. Verses 11 through 13. Jesus says this, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Jesus has a crown awaiting those who persevere until the end or to use a language here who patiently endure we saw this crown mentioned and jesus spoke to the church at smyrna chapter 2 and verse 10 he said this do not fear what you're about to suffer behold the devil's about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation be faithful unto death and i will give you the crown of life paul at the end of his life and 2 Timothy 4 speaks about the crown of righteousness that is stored up for me, and not only to me, but all who have loved His appearing, all who love and have longed for the coming of Christ. I have this crown of righteousness that's laid up for me. And Jesus gives this crown. And as He gives us this crown, He claims us as His own, saying, Well done, well done, good and faithful one. You're my child, you're my heir. 
you will reign on the earth. In verse 12, Jesus continues on with the claim. Verse 12, he says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Now, this is symbolic apocalyptic literature coming right here. Right? But if, like in the church in Philadelphia, if we overcome, if we hold fast to the name of Jesus, if we don't deny his name, then he'll keep his word as he's commanded. We'll be a pillar in the temple. Like, what does that mean? We're going to be changed into clay, right? Wrapped around, right? With Roman... Co- That'd be awful, right? To have this weight of the, the, the roof upon your head? That'd be terrible. That'd be difficult. But here it is. As a pillar, you're going to give heedance and structure, and you're going to honor the temple where you are. That's what I think this means. It's used in Galatians chapter 2 about some certain people being the pillars of the church. James and Cephas, I think. But we'll be honored being a pillar in the temple. And the idea is a pillar will never go out of the temple. It's hard for pillars to move. It implies we'll never be out of the temple, which means we'll always be in the blessings of God. Forever be where He is. And that's a blessing. And then we see Jesus take out his pen. I'm not sure if his pen will be a Rock Valley Bible Church pen like, like this. Which, by the way, you ought to use these and lose them at your places of work so that people say, oh, oh, what's, what's that about? You know, oftentimes when I have a chance, I'll bring a Rock Valley Bible Church to my play pool and people are writing and they're like, oh, what's this? Oh, okay, that's, that's what it is, right? Sometimes they say, oh, that's, that's Steve. That's what you're doing, right? And I say, yep, this is me. But here's Rock Valley Bible Church. He's going to take his pen And he begins to write on our bodies. He's going to write on him the name of my God. But but pen goes away. Maybe a tattoo machine might be better, right? He's going to write on him. We're going to be tattooed in heaven, all right? The name of my God. Second, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven, and my own name. So so it's going to be written on us. It says God or, or Yahweh or something is going to be written on us. And Jerusalem, like that's where we're from, right? Oftentimes you have an ID tag, shows where you're from or what you do. Like we're going to be so identified, marked, imprinted that we belong in Jerusalem. And then also Jesus says, my own new name. What that name is, I don't know what that name is. It's going to be a new name, which he knows or will know. Now, this is the first time in the book of Revelation we see things being written on people. And we'll see this on some other occasions. In Revelation chapter 14. In verse 1, we see this. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, again, this is apocalyptic literature. This is what John saw. John saw people with names on their foreheads. Whether we will actually have names on our foreheads, I don't know. Right? That's up for debate. Somehow we're marked. We're identified. That's the key thing that's coming across here. We will be identified as being part of God, as opposed to chapter 13 when the beast is writing the mark on people's names the number 666 where they have 666 in their head i'm not exactly sure but they're having like they're that's like the the improper mark or they're, they're segmenting somehow these people are marked for the kingdom of god and these people are marked for the kingdom of satan we see that also in revelation 22 and verse 4 in revelation 22 we're talking about right at the end 
It says, no longer will there be anything accursed, verse 3, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and His servants will worship Him and they will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. The name of Christ on our foreheads. Again, apocalyptic, that's what He sees, whether that's reality or not, we don't know. But we're also going to see the New Jerusalem written on us, identified on us. And the New Jerusalem is talked about in Revelation 21. About the holy city of New Jerusalem comes down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. But this is what it means, right? Jerusalem is coming down. It's a place where we will forever dwell. The Bible starts in a garden and it ends in the city. This perfect Jerusalem. And the great thing about this city is that God is there. Verse 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And then later in the chapter, it's even described as having golden streets and gates of pearls. Again, that's what John saw. Whether that's actually what's happening there, we don't know. But it's symbolic of this glorious city, this glorious place where we live. We will live with God. And then we have this new name of Jesus. I don't know. It's, it's a new name, new nickname he gets, whatever. We're going to be identified and marked with Christ in heaven. Forever. And that's what verse 12 is all about. It's about Jesus claiming his own people. And then the final call, verse 13, is like we've been doing. It's like every other letter ends. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We have an ear. Are you listening to what he says to the seven churches? Are you listening to what he says to the church in Philadelphia? If so, by the way, by today you should be encouraged. Encouraged that though we at Rock Valley Bible Church may have but little power, think about how God looks upon us as we keep his word, as we follow faithfully along in his way as his followers. He blesses us immensely. With, with blessings, it doesn't come to any of those in other churches. Just the depth of this secure entrance into the kingdom. He's got the keys. He's going to bring us in. He's going to mark us. He's going to stamp us. Right? No one's going to uh, enter apart from him. Get in him, through him, into the kingdom. What a glorious place to be. The promise to the church with but little power. And, and I, I just pray and I hope that we might have a, a proper perspective of ministry and what ministry is about. I mean, certainly we want to have more influence in the world, but where we are, may we not be so sucked into a success syndrome that we just go with any fad or, or try compromise so that we might be big and successful. We rejoice what God does at those other churches for sure. But this is, this is us. May we just continue on be faithful. Love and serve the Lord our King. And we get the blessings that He'll come as He claims us as His own. So let's pray. Father, I know what encouragement the church in Philadelphia is to me. Realizing it's a small church, but nothing critical has come about from your perspective. We aren't big, we aren't strong. But God, we may be faithful. We, we may keep your word. And Father, from I know of Rock Valley Bible Church, the vast majority of us do. Right? We're, we're in your word daily, so we encourage daily Bible reading. So we read and submit to your word to know what it is that, that you tell us to do and follow in your way. Right? Believe the things you write about yourself. Trust and follow in the ways that you direct us to go. And I pray, God, for where there are places of sin where we don't keep your name, where there 
Even people here who are willfully not keeping your word. Just pray you'd convict them now. How that repentance might come. God, simply they might know the blessings that are coming. The glories of heaven. With God and Christ, the name of God and of the Lamb on our foreheads. We get to dwell in the new Jerusalem, being pillars in the temple, never leaving God's presence. God, what a, what a joy and a delight that is. So God, may you delight to shine upon us and, and bless us and be with us this week. May next Sunday as we gather together and eat a meal together, may it be a, a glorious time. And as we meet together during the week, with our various Bible studies and accountability groups and meetings and coffees that we have and connections, God, may that all do what you can do to build up your kingdom for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.